Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. All right, well, it's good to be here. It's good to dive into scripture. We're going to be covering three chapters tonight, so buckle up. We're in this series on Revelation, and we're coming at it from a theme of hope. What is our ultimate hope? Who is our ultimate hope? And um, it's good news because we're finding that there is hope in Jesus. And if you remember one thing, remember that there's hope in Jesus. Um, In 1994, the movie Dumb and Dumber uh, was a big classic. And you'll learn a little about me. Um, So I'm going to miss some of the details here. I know we have some Dumb and Dumber fans in the room. So, Uh, but this movie is about two buddies, Harry and Lloyd. And these guys get mixed up in this whole thing with this suitcase that has all this money. It's this blackmailing ransom kind of thing. And so for whatever reason, they have this suitcase on a moped and they're driving through the Rocky Mountains in the bitter cold of winter. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's Harry uh, is driving and he has no gloves. He barely has a jacket and he is freezing. Um, And... It, Lloyd is on the back, and he's like holding on to him. Anyway, pretty funny scene to begin with. But uh, I think the moped or scooter breaks down. They end up at a fire. Uh, Harry is uh, warming his hands, and he's saying, my hands are freezing. Uh, my hands are about to fall off. Uh, it's so, so cold. And there Lloyd is. Am I getting the names right? Anyway, there's Lloyd, and, and he's, he's like, oh, yeah. I got these gloves. My hands are getting a little sweaty. Maybe I'll take off this extra pair that I had. And he said, you, and and so of course, Harry is pretty upset. And he says, you had an extra pair of gloves this whole time. And he gets furious and he goes berserk on him and he starts choking his buddy. And as he's being choked, he's like, your hands are freezing. Um, And it's like, of course, you didn't give me your extra pair of gloves. Um, I think how this relates, how does it relate? When you wait too long and when you, when you follow your English teacher's advice to write the conclusion at the end and then you don't have time to write a conclusion, this is what you come up with. Um, sometimes Christians are like Lloyd, right? We don't really share the good stuff that we have, right? We're, we're concerned maybe a lot of times about our own comfort, right? Our own freezing hands, So we bring an extra pair of gloves, right? Uh, Well, tonight we're going to be talking about some really good news, some really tough news, some really hard uh, stuff. Um, And I think what I want to do is try to exercise entering into a healthy discomfort. Because you'll notice this is uncomfortable stuff that I'm about to share. And this is not stuff that's easy to talk about. 12 through 14 deal with some really, really hard Uh, topics about what's to come in the end of the world. And, but I can't stand up here and not tell you the whole truth. I can't deceive you and not tell you I have an extra pair of gloves. If you come to RUF for years and never realize the depth of the riches of the gospel and the full truth, the whole truth of it, uh, I would not be doing my job. RUF would not be um, doing something Right. We're going to share the whole truth tonight. 
Um, of course, I don't mean comprehensively or exhaustively, but we are going to share some of the hardest truth about the gospel. I'm going to come at it um, through three points. Uh, the theme is war, but we're going to talk about hope in the midst of this war. So point one is the war. There's hope in the midst of this war. The second is the theater of war, which is an old-fashioned way of saying, where does this war play out? Um, and there's hope despite uh, the deception and lies that are um, the weapons in the war. And then the last thing, there's an end of the war, that there's hope and there's a place without hope. So we're going to be talking about those things. So first, the war. I know there's some purists out there, and when you see, uh, on, you know, maybe you're watching the football game or whatever you do, and you see a Christmas commercial <laughs> in the middle of October, some of you purists are like, this is terrible. Turn it <laughs> off. When you hear on the radio, when you go to the grocery store and you see next to the Halloween candy, the Christmas candy, you're like, how can this be? Um, <laughs> tonight, we are going to share a Christmas story. Um, but you might be confused because it sounds more like a Halloween story than it does uh, a peaceful nativity scene. It's a battle scene. Part of what Revelation does for us is it unveils, it reveals um, by giving us this heavenly perspective of what's going on in the cosmos, of, in fact, what is going on in reality. Revelation 12 gives us a perspective through this vision that John received of a war that was raging when Jesus was born, which is what Christmas celebrates. So let's read uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 6 to begin with. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He gave birth to a, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she uh, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. In Revelation, we're always looking for symbolism, and that's just not for purely symbolism. It's to find the meaning in the symbolism. Mary, I'm sorry, this woman represents two things. First, Mary. <laughs> Give it away. Give it away. This woman is Mary. This woman uh, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, about to give birth to um, her son, who is the Messiah. Of course, we don't read this in the Gospels. We don't, there's not some fifth gospel that talks about a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon uh, that was seeking to devour Jesus once she gave birth. But we do, in Matthew 2, read about a king named Herod who under the effects of sin and the guiles, the lies of Satan, was so worried about the prophesied birth of a king that he called on wise men. It wasn't necessarily just three. We don't know how many it was. But these wise men were to go and find this child who was to be the king. And of course, the wise men get wise. And they go rogue. 
And they don't return to Herod. And so because Herod doesn't know what to do, he does this last-ditch effort to try to rid the region of Bethlehem of any chance of a king that would rival him. And he has every male child age two and younger to be killed in the entire region surrounding Bethlehem. Thankfully, an angel warned Joseph about the threat of Herod, and he fled to Egypt. Now you're starting to see how this dragon was, in fact, at work in the Christmas story. He was trying to eradicate Satan. Uh, He was trying to eradicate Jesus. Satan was trying to eradicate Jesus. The second thing the woman represents is the church. The woman is crowned with 12 crowns. This represents the 12 tribes of Israel. She was cared for for 1,260 days. That number actually shows up elsewhere. It symbolizes the inter-advental period, which is between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his second coming. So basically, the period that we're in, that the church is in, this woman is cared for in the same way the church is cared for. She's protected. The church is like um, Israel was in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. The church is kind of in this wilderness wandering on our way to the promised land. But the church is being protected from the dragon, from Satan. What does this mean for us? Well, there's first a war taking place. I've always been fascinated by the theater. Um, I've always loved to see like what's behind the curtain and what's taking place, even in the, like the you know far back and the sound booth, like all the stuff that makes the show happen, right? The rigging, the uh, the trap doors, the um, what you know, who's pulling what rope when. Uh, it's fascinating, and Revelation is pulling back the curtain and is showing you what's actually going on in a cosmic reality. So this telling of the Christmas story shows us that Herod was an instrument of the dragon, of Satan, to vanquish his archenemy, Jesus. And so Revelation shows us also that what's going on right now is an ongoing war, an ongoing spiritual war. In 2 Kings, there are these two men, Elijah and Elisha. And they were the prophets for Israel. And Israel had this enemy named Syria. And the Syrian army had surrounded the city where Elijah and Elisha were. And Elisha was the younger kind of apprentice of the older Elijah, who was the prophet for Israel in that day. And Elisha was scared. And Elijah said, don't worry. The army that's on our side is greater than their army. And Elisha was like, I don't get it. Uh, Pray that my eyes might be open to see what you see. And sure enough, God opened Elisha's eyes and he saw that behind the Syrian army that surrounded them, was in the mountains, they were teeming with horses and chariots of fire. This army of the Lord was there, though invisible, fighting on their side. So that hasn't changed. The cosmology of Revelation and even the the belief of uh, Christianity 
is that there is a spiritual reality, not up there, not out there, but around us. And that there is a cosmic battle taking place. What is this battle? Well, it's a war between good and evil. It's between God and Satan. But humans are caught in between. Those who are on God's side are protected and safe. So Revelation pulls back the curtain. It tells us what's actually going on, but it also tells us the future. We know from the book of Revelation how this war is going to end. Let's look at Revelation 12, 7. I'm going to be doing some paraphrasing and jumping around, but um, mainly 7 through 10. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Skipping to verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Skipping to verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. Remember, the woman represents the church. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What this tells us is that the victory has already been secured. The dragon, Satan, has been thrown down from heaven. A mortal wound has been afflicted upon him. And he knows his time is short. And therefore, he's doing whatever he can in this world to take as many down with him. How did that initial victory get secured? Well, it's by the blood of the Lamb. When um, John the Baptist, another prophet, came telling of Jesus and his coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's a lamb. Jesus is a lamb because he was a sacrifice. He was an atoning sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin. But it wasn't just that. It was also the Latin is Christus Victor. The cross and the resurrection was the victory of Christ against Satan. He has been dealt a mortal wound. There's an old hymn that says, Behold, his doom is sure. It's only a matter of time. Elsewhere uh, in the book of Revelation, it talks about this, this mortal wound that this dragon or this beast has, but it appears as if it's been healed. How would this change your life? if you viewed it as a part of a war taking place for your soul. Remember, it's God and Satan. It's the dragon and Jesus. But the war is for our souls. How would it change your hope if you knew the future, that the victory is ours in Jesus? I'm going to unpack this more as we talk about the theater of war. So I've I've maybe blown your minds and confuse you, I apologize, by this kind of transcendent cosmic 
view of the world, that we are engaged in a cosmic war. But how does that look like on the ground? What does that look like today right here at BU? What is the, in other words, the theater of war? How does that play out? Revelation 13 gives us some clues. Let's look at verses one through six in particular. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Skipping down to verse 11. Then I saw yet another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Remember in chapter 12, when we heard of the dragon, it said that this dragon is an accuser and a deceiver of the whole world. When we're told about the beast, we say that his mouth utters haughty and blasphemous words. And to make matters worse, there's this third creature, the second beast, which is also called um, a false prophet. And by his signs that he's allowed to work, he deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast, another to worship, in other words, to worship the beast. Talk about an unholy trinity. The tools of Satan, the beast and the false prophet, they are deception, blasphemy, accusation, and more deception. The theater of this cosmic war that rages is that of truth, belief, and worship. Satan is a creature. We need to recognize that. Um, he is a fallen angel whose very existence is contingent on God's original creation. He was not eternal. Uh, he was created. But by his own choice and will, Satan sought power to rival God himself. So what Satan is doing, he can't create. He doesn't create. What he does is he takes and he steals. He knows God to be a holy trinity. He creates his own trinity. He makes, he steals a beast, a false prophet. He's seeking to lead the world into the great lie that he alone is worthy of his worship. He's trying to compete with the Trinity, God, in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And guys, Satan has been up to this act of deception the entire history of humanity. In the Garden of Eden, he deceived Adam and Eve into thinking that the forbidden fruit was wrongly withheld for them, that they would be like God if they ate it. At Mount Sinai, Satan twisted the truth and deceived the Israelites when Moses was up on the mountain getting the, 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 um, the commandments. Satan deceived them 
God has given up on you, is what they believed. In the wilderness, when Jesus was tempted, Satan twisted the words of Scripture to, tw- uh, to tempt Jesus to take his power and to wield it for Satan's purposes and not God's. And every day, he spreads lies among us, among the world. He tells us that we are mistreated by God. He tells us that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't care about us, that he's rejected us, and that we are alone. He tempts us, seduces us with promises of belonging, of pleasure, meaning, and hope. And guys, the, the lies of Satan are far more sophisticated than we imagine. We, we joke of a devil and dismiss him, or we make far too much of him. Those are two errors. We joke about him, or we make too much of him. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it well uh, in the Screwtape Letters, uh, which is basically a, sat- a satirical uh, exchange, this correspondence between this older, wiser demon and this younger demon who's kind of learning the ropes of being a demon. And he says this in a letter. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, meaning the, the person he's trying to tempt, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, therefore he cannot believe in you. When we joke of the devil, when we make him into a cartoon version, that's a lie. Right? When, when we make too much of him and we think of his power as equal to that of God's, that's a lie. That's not true. What Satan and his armies want to do is they want to remain in the dark. They want to remain someplace in between where you don't actually see them for who they are, which is a dragon, a beast, and another beast. That's who they are. They want you to believe what Sally Lloyd-Jones says, the terrible lie, the terrible lie, that God doesn't love you. That's what they want you to believe more than anything else. And when we believe, when we begin to even uh, take on these lies, these trains of thinking, um, that God's commands are not out of his love for us, but he wants to control us, he wants to keep good things from us, we call into question God's character. We start to wonder, yeah, maybe the problem's with the word of God and not with me. Maybe it needs to change or the way we view it needs to change and not me. It says that Satan is an accuser. And guys, this is where um, if you've been a Christian for a long time and maybe especially if you have a sensitive conscience, this is where Satan works. This is where the war takes place. In God's word, it says, 1 John 1, 9, um, that if you confess our sins, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. If that's true, which it is, then we are made clean when we repent and turn to Christ. Our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. You can't get further than as far as the east is from the west. And yet the accuser's words in our ear, you're terrible, you're awful, you're good for nothing. You might as well keep doing it. 
we begin to believe that Jesus' words, that Jesus' blood has not covered our sin. And maybe we even get so wrapped up in this um, accusation, this burdensome self-loathing, that we say, you know, maybe that's what needs to change. Maybe it's God's word that needs to change. Um, Maybe what God says is evil is actually not, and I need to just come clean. He twists goodness on our head. And, and I think the, the way we see this in our, in our culture, uh, we don't live in a culture that's brazenly sinful, but one that's self-righteously sinful. Where the tables are turned, it is Christians who say things are wrong who are bigoted enough to claim that we are wrong, right? It's we who should have the shame piled on us. Um, but let's not fall into a different trap here. Um, there are many um, news stories that I read about Christian churches, Christian organizations, uh, falling, Christian leaders falling into sin. And some lately have misperceived this actual blame um, from the world as persecution. Basically, the world saying, you guys are hypocrites. Guys, that's not persecution, if it's true. If it's true. Right? We need to say, hey, that is the truth. We need to repent when the accusation is based on fact. But Satan doesn't want the truth to be made known. Um, so how do we engage in this war? Well, Ephesians 6 is a great guide here. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice, he doesn't say this is a cultural war. He doesn't say your enemy is your neighbor. He doesn't say that. He says it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. And therefore, we need to know our weapons. Ephesians 6 continues, it says, put on the whole armor of God. Know the truth. Talks about the sword of the spirit being the word of God. Talks about the shield of faith with which to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. We use spiritual weapons in a spiritual war. Notice human beings are not the enemy. There is never a place for attack, physical or verbal, on anyone created in the image of God. This militaristic language kind of Makes you uncomfortable. No, this, this is a spiritual war we are talking about. And so the fight happens on our knees. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. This means that for Christians, prayer is the front line of offense and defense in this war. And this means that there's hope. Even though there is a war raging around us, that there are lies and deceit from Satan being thrown around, that we have tools, we have weapons. What is the end of this war? Revelations told us the future. Jesus wins. He will conquer and the church is victorious with him. Uh, 
Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, speak to this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Who are the victors in this war? Those who have hoped in Christ and not in this world. It says they are marked with God's name, meaning that they are his. They are his. We are his, never to be taken away from him. And who are the vanquished? Revelation 14, 9 through 11 says this. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. I'm sympathetic to C.S. Lewis when he says that there is no doctrine, in other words, no belief of Christianity or no teaching of the Bible that I would more willingly remove than this one if it was in my power. R.C. Sproul, a famous theologian uh, from Pennsylvania, said if there was one doctrine he struggled with the most, even into his later years, it was hell. It was this doctrine. But C.S. Lewis says this, but hell has the full support of scripture and especially of Jesus's own words. It has always been held by Christians and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. Similarly, if this life is a part of a cosmic war, then there must be a losing side. Hell is not a popular topic, nor should it be. No Christian should relish it. It's the most difficult doctrine to believe in. Because each of us know many people who do not believe in Jesus and are this moment in danger of hell. Hell is where there is no hope. But now there is hope. The magician duo, Penn and Teller, um, some of you guys might have seen their, their magic show. Um, Penn Gillette is an outspoken atheist. And in a YouTube video, he famously calls out Christians on hell, but not the way you might expect. He says this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, in other words, evangelize or tell people about uh, their religion. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? 
I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that, unquote. How this war ends for the people you know is more important than anything. Paul writes about this in Romans 10 after a long um, chapter, in chapter 9, where he talks about his own brethren, his own people who are lost. He says this in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is our hope. That is the Christian hope. But he goes on, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or having a conversation? And how are they to preach or have that conversation unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The church might be in the wilderness. We might be in the midst of a cosmic battle. But we have a beautiful mission to tell of Jesus the only hope for the world. There is no hope with the beast. Let's no longer be deceived, but let's stand with Jesus, the victor, and let's not keep that a secret. Father, Lord, this is um, truth that cuts right through, uh, cuts right to our hearts. Um, Lord, it is truth that we, we desperately need to hear or those around us need to hear. Lord, we pray that this gospel would go to the ends of the earth, that there would be many in this room, that there would be many here on this campus and in this city that would call on the name of the Lord, that they would believe, and that they would know eternal life with you, the good Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Pray in your name. Amen.